Perhaps you were sneezing more than usual this week. How about those eyes? Are they extra watery? The culprit, of course, might be all those seasonal pollens swirling through the air, or it might just be dust settling on the General Assembly's 2015 session. Hi, I'm John Chuanis, and on this edition of Indiana Lawmakers, I'll be joined by four journalists who covered the session day in and day out. We'll look at what passed, what failed, and in either case, what the General Assembly's actions will mean for Hoosiers in the days and months ahead. Indiana Lawmakers, from the State House to your house. Purdue researchers are advancing manufacturing industries by developing 3D additive methods, leading through innovation and job creation. Purdue Research Foundation. Contact innovation at prf.org. Here to weigh in on the General Assembly's 2015 session are four people who, as I noted at the top of the show, chronicled the proceedings day in and day out, and on more than a few occasions, night in and night out. I'm guessing that if their eyes are bloodshot or blurry, it's not seasonal allergens or dust settling on the just-completed session. It's probably just good old-fashioned lack of sleep. I'm pleased to welcome Leslie Weidenbenner, executive editor of thestatehousefile.com, a government and politics website run by Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, Brandon Smith, State House Bureau Chief for Indiana Public Broadcasting, Nikki Kelly, State House Bureau Chief for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, and Chelsea Schneider, State House reporter for the Evansville Courier and Press. I thank you all for delaying the start of your respective naps for another 30, <laughs> 30 minutes or so. I do appreciate it. I know long hours uh, have taken their toll. Uh, great job covering this session, let me just say. Uh, it's, uh, it's great that we have uh, an active, robust press corps. Not as big as it used to be, but still, but still going strong. What will this session uh, be remembered for? Every session is sort of, the shorthand is it's the daylight saving time session or the blanket, fill in the blank session. What do you think this one will be remembered for? Well, I think that we're all going to have the same answer, which is mm -hmm. that it's going to be remembered for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the fight and the arguments that ensued about um, discrimination against uh, the LGBT community and what that means going forward for whether or not Indiana puts sexual orientation into its civil rights law. I mean, there's, there's just no doubt that that overshadowed, uh, you know, it, leading up um, to the big fight, mm -hmm. it was kind of underneath the surface, but when it exploded, it exploded with such force that it overshadowed everything else. And all of the, yeah, all of the legislative leaders agree at least on that, that for that two-week period of time leading up to it, immediately leading up to its passage, and then following the passage and leading up to the legislative fix that lawmakers had to craft afterwards, that was the only thing they did. I, I think the Senate did almost nothing. The House tried to get a couple of minor bills through in that in that week, but I mean, literally, all eyes were glued on from around the country, from around the world, were glued on the Indiana State House, and that's the only thing they focused on for about two weeks. Now, Democrats will say it's lasted a lot longer than that. Republicans are trying to play the well, it's fading over time, and we won't really remember that. But I of course, don't think that'll legislative make leaders and the governor, for that matter, say. Well, this issue was only a major issue because of the media frenzy the, or a lack of understanding on the part of reporters and even a analysts. A perception problem. A perception problem. I mean, I guess blaming the media, uh, not, a, not necessarily a no novel approach. But, uh, Nikki, what about that? Is this, was this a media creation or was this the legitimate, uh, most significant thing that came oh, out of this session? absolutely legitimate significant. I, I mean, they can argue about whether everyone on social media had read the bill, fully understood it, those kinds of things. But, you know, in the end, 
whether the purpose of the bill was over here, how it can be used is important. And, you know, they said, no, you know, this law has never been used to discriminate against anyone. Well, just this week, a Kentucky judge ruled that, you know, a printer could turn down an LGBT uh, group who wanted to print up flyers, and he ruled it under the RIFRA Act. So, I mean, that's a fair discussion. That discussion will go on. We'll see how it plays out in Indiana, but um, absolutely fair. Well, and one thing that became clear during the uh, debate was that the wording of Indiana's bill was not, despite uh, proponents' uh, insistence, identical to what had been enacted in other states, mm -hmm. nor was it similar in, in its entirety to what uh, Congress had enacted back in 1993. So there were some differences, clearly. But I, uh, I would, guessing, Chelsea, you'd agree that this was, uh, this is when people uh, look back on this and when you tell your grandkids about this, I remember the session of 2015. This well, is what it'll be known for? You know, um, and I also think that a lot of the opponents of, you know, the bill said it was more of a broad writing than, you know, the federal, you know, law. I also think, you know, definitely the session will be remembered for our passage of RIFRA, but I also think it kind of muted or, um, you know, didn't give as much prominent play to issues such as the repeal of the common construction wage. I think absent, you know, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that could have been more of a defining issue underneath the budget this session. So. Well, that was probably, if, if you were doing a body count in terms of attendance at a rally, mm -hmm. that probably takes the cake for the largest Definitely. rally, as opposed to some of the rallies that were attached to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if I'm, not, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Well, what was interesting about religious mm -hmm. freedom is that it kind of was under the surface for a long time. It exploded, and then it, it has sort of, at the state house at least, it's sort of gone back underground. But the common construction wage, mm -hmm. I mean, people were upset about that from the beginning. And Chelsea, I agree with you. I, mm -hmm. I think that that is a huge, huge change in Indiana law. And a lot of people didn't talk about it very much because they were, it, it actually passed somewhat around the same time as the RIFRA thing. And so, it really got mm -hmm. underplayed, at least, um, you know, I mean, we all worried about it, but outside of the press corps at the State House, I think it got underplayed. Which, which of those is the more potent political issue? Uh, and I'm not here to talk necessarily about 19, or 2016 oh. electoral politics. Uh, we're talking about the session, but clearly the Democratic leadership in the House and Senate would love to keep both of those issues very much on the front burner and talk about RIFRA all the time and talk about the repeal of common uh, construction yeah. wage all the time. And I'm sure the Republican leadership would just as soon say, you know, nothing to see here, move on. Well, they, they're not, the Republican leadership isn't shy about talking about the common construction well, wage. Well, that's they're right. They're very that's proud that they mm -hmm. passed that repeal. Um, I, not I so much on the other. Uh, no, not yeah. so much on, on RIFRA. They're more than happy to not talk so much about that anymore. I think the most telling thing, uh, right towards the end of session, as I was trying to put together my wrap-up, um, I talked to uh, House Minority Leader, House Democratic Leader, Scott Pelath, and I said, and my, my focus was, the questions I was asking, was driving him towards, this is the RIFRA session, this is lasting impact. And he said that, but tried to immediately pivot to the common construction wage. So this is obviously in addition to RIFRA. The common construction wage repeal is something I think Democrats are really going to hit hard uh, in the coming elections uh, against Republicans. And I think it's an important uh, wrinkle in that is that if you look back to the right to work debate in 2012, it was workers at the state house rallying. And something that they pointed out this time around with common wage was it wasn't, as one Democrat put it, it wasn't the guys in the hard hats who were mm -hmm. in the state house. 
It was the guys in suits. It was the business owners, the contractors themselves, who some of them said at that rally that we were talking about, I've been a lifelong Republican. I've supported these guys with my money. I'm not going to do that anymore because they're doing this. So I think that politically has, could have some real ramifications the way right to work ultimately didn't. It could, but mm -hmm. I also wonder if you went up to like 10 random people on the street, did, would anyone be able to explain what the common construction wage is? I just don't think it's an issue that transcends to the It might be tough to public. find 10 lawmakers, actually, <laughs> who, uh, who could explain the nuances. But. Right. So, I mean, I don't know if it's going to have that much impact in, in the sense of sort of your average show Hoosiers. I think one issue that Democrats kind of lost a little bit of firepower on was when they pushed back the election of a state board of education chair after 2017. So you're not going to have this, you know, visual of, you know, a, a state board being able to vote out Superintendent Ritz as board chair. So. Was that political uh, savvy, do you think, that they didn't want to have this uh, juxtaposition, uh, you, the, you know, the video of somebody effectively being uh, removed from from her position as chair of the, the board. I mean, that, the optics is that what caused them? Do you think to back away? Because clearly they had the votes. Definitely, and I also think you know I definitely think it was a little bit of political strategy not to be able to give the Democrats you know that example. But I also think you know lawmakers when they go back to their districts, uh, you know the state board of education changes was one of the main issues, other than the I step length that they were hearing you know at their meet your legislators events. So I agree too that. Um, that Vicky, that RIFRA will be much bigger than common construction because I just think that RIFRA, the the interesting politics of gay rights, is that it's not just Democrats who are pushing for um, uh, for gay marriage and for things like that. Now it is it is coming into the Republican Party, and so Republicans have to be careful about where they come down on this particular issue. Where I think common construction still generally, not completely, but still generally falls more upon re down Republican and Democratic well, lines. On the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it seems to me, because of uh, what we're seeing with uh, gay rights issues before the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, we're going to be hearing about it, heard about it this week with uh, arguments before the court. We're going to hear about decisions and other decisions coming out of other jurisdictions across the country. Every time that comes up, it effectively serves as a reminder of well, what happened and now, in, in Indiana. And now the, the law, legislative leaders have set themselves mm -hmm. up to have a debate or at least to have calls for a debate about the, the Civil Rights Act and whether sexual orientation should be added to that in 2016. An election year. That'll be, yeah, an anybody think I mean, if that's going to happen or not? Is that for them to not do that because, right. you know, for two weeks we heard nothing but we don't believe in discrimination, you know, yes. we are a loving, accepting mm -hmm. state, and, and eventually they're going to have to, you know, either put up or go home. Yeah. And we heard issue. it more from Senator, uh, Senate Leader David yes. Long mm -hmm. than Speaker Brian Bosman, but, but both of them, but mostly Long, said this is the start of a conversation. We, mm -hmm. are, we are considering and debating issues we have never even thought about before, and that's important. And that was a way to, at the time, placate the LGBT community but they've they, they backed themselves into a corner a little bit now where well, they might have to debate that. Well, we election. had the caucus leaders on uh, the panel last week, and, and I asked David Long specifically about was his suggestion that, was it a guarantee or a promise that it would be debated next year? He backed away a little bit from that or suggested that was never his, his uh, contention. But uh, there will be certainly a lot of pressure for people to take up that issue. All right, we talked about what the, uh, we've already talked about some of the other issues as well as what the most memorable or the shorthand sort of, uh, label for the session will be, but 
If you look at where, pardon the uh, you know, cliche, the rubber hits the road, when we talk about the effect of the General Assembly on average Hoosiers, their daily lives, what is the most significant or most enduring thing that came out of this uh, session? To me, I think it's probably education funding and the change in the way the school funding formula works. Now, the budget lasts only two years. The next legislature can change the school funding formula. It can be changed and it will be changed in some way every two years. But assuming that Republicans retain control of the General Assembly for some time, which I think is a pretty safe assumption, pretty safe yeah. assumption um, you're going to see this continue, which is a movement of money from urban districts, which have over the last 15 or 20 years started, uh, uh, there's become a bigger gap between the higher funded districts, which in Indiana is urban districts. Yeah. and the lower funded districts, which are suburban districts. This budget took steps to, to um, reduce that gap and to shift some of that money to suburban schools, and that is a major change in the way schools are funded here. I think you'll also see even a growing financial prominence of the education reform and school choice models. You know, this year um, the General Assembly passed the first ever, you know, per-student facilities funding you know, additional money for charter Not as much schools. as the, the, Not the as much as some Governor backers wanted. have wanted, but mm -hmm. it is, what, $500 per student that they'll so get to put toward facilities? Definitely, which I, I believe is $20 million over and the Which is 500 more than mm -hmm. they had before, which they, because they had no uh, financial support for, sure. for infrastructure mm -hmm. or, or right. construction, if I'm not mistaken. And also, you know, removing the cap on the voucher, you know, amount, so. And that mm -hmm. voucher amount, uh, and there's something that Democrats talk a lot about, that voucher amount will just keep, not the, the dollar mm -hmm. amount, but the amount of students using vouchers, will just keep going up. And, and right now, we can't really see the plateau yet. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty steady curve upwards, and there's no sign yet that it's leveling off. So the question becomes, at what point does it level off? How many students will be in that program? And how much money will that be uh, draining, if you will, or taking away from traditional public school dollars? And of course, yeah, because you do want, uh, you have the Democratic caucus saying, let's Let's break all these out so everybody, reporters, taxpayers, voters can see exactly what's being spent where. Not a lot of interest apparently on the part of the Republican uh, caucus in the House and Senate in doing that. Uh, you know, education, education session, everybody sort of went to the, the well, lectern the and said it is, but it's, yeah, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder because you still have Democrats saying, I think 137 uh, school districts is the count I saw that there are, are gonna hurt, are gonna suffer from this despite this record increase in, in base funding. It's true. I mean, the fact is is that, it, I, except when we did the minimum guarantee where everyone was guaranteed to go up a certain amount, I mean, I don't know that there's a way that no school district gets hurt. The fact is, is if you lose 500 to 1,000 kids, you're going to get less money. Um, and so a lot of that 137 is people losing districts. But on top of that, what they've done is they've given less money to the complexity index which is what helps these urban districts with these at-risk kids in poverty. And so that's a huge shift that sort of, I think most people get that it's occurring, but that's the one that you know, you'll be able to see in the classrooms, you know, on the ground, in the field. When you have an example not far from where we're sitting right now, where mm -hmm. Indianapolis public schools will see a drop of uh, 10 or $11 million, and right up the road in Hamilton Southeastern, uh, which is one of, I think, maybe is the fastest growing district, in the state, suburban Indianapolis is getting 10 or 11 million dollars more. 
it, was this softened enough uh, that it, 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 you talked earlier about how the strategy on the part of uh, the Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, with the leadership of the State Board of Education, the optics. Had, did they soften this enough, the blow to urban districts, do you think? Because uh, initially the hit was going to be IPS, for instance, I think three times the hit that they, they're taking now. You know, I think that urban schools do end up, you know, a little bit better in the ultimate budget that was approved than where they started out. You know, I do still think that they're moving toward a model where the money follows the child. Um, they're moving toward a model where schools do receive less when it comes to at-risk students, but more money is offered to the base foundation, you know, that re they receive per child. So I do think that they did work to soften it, you know, at the end, but there is still, you know, a change kind of in the philosophy that they're going toward in school funding. And so on the subject of money still, more money for community corrections because of sort of changes in sentencing requirements was going to, well, is shifting more of a burden to... Uh, county sheriffs and county jails and so forth uh, to deal with those issues. More money for road construction above and beyond what uh, uh, is already set aside in, in those funds. D domestic violence, infant mortality, those sorts of uh, things. Those haven't gotten as much attention, surprise, surprise, as, as the education funding. Significant though? That they those should. Dollars oh are in yeah, there? I mean that, that was a huge, this was, um, this goes back about five years now in the, in the the overhaul of the criminal code, and, and the idea was we're driving low-level nonviolent offenders towards these local communities to keep them out of the prison system and hopefully reduce recidivism. Well, the only way that works is if we're funding local community corrections, and that's really what lawmakers were driving to in this budget. That was always going to be, well, here's where we got to start doing it. And that's exactly what they did. A, a big increase, about $80 million for local community correction programs, both treatment um, uh, rehabilitation, that sort of thing, as well as the incarceration, if you will, side of it, uh, though that's obviously not a big part of local community corrections, and a small, a very small increase for the Department of Correction, and none of that can be used to build new prison beds, uh, which the Department of Correction says needs to happen, but as lawmakers point out, they always say that needs to happen, and it usually doesn't. That was, if, if by my count, the only true loss uh, for, the, for the administration was the, the request of funding for these two new prisons. Everything else, granted, you know, he mm -hmm. wanted more for the, the charter mm -hmm. grants. He wanted more for this. He wanted more for that. But he can at least say, I got a partial victory. As you point out, Brandon, no money for prison construction, which uh, this is a new attitude, I guess, on the part of lawmakers, trying no more lock them up and throw away the key kind well, of Well, it's going to be interesting because what the, the Department of Correction makes an interesting argument. It's not that they think overall they're going to have more prisoners. What they think is that there's going to be a shift because of the sentencing reform in the prisoners that they serve. So the lower level felons who are in um, lower security prisons will be going into the community and served there, where the prison sentences for higher level felonies will actually could be extended because prisoners will no longer be able to serve just half their, well, violent felons, I think. Is that right? Just the violence. It's pretty high level. Yeah, yeah. will have to mm -hmm. serve 75% of their sentences. So they could be in there longer, which means ultimately they'll need more beds in the higher security prisons. And they say that's going to cause a shift. And they can't just take a low-level prison and just suddenly turn it into a, right. into a secure mm -hmm. prison. And so that is more of their argument than we're going to have more prisoners. It's more a shift in, uh, in the way they have to serve the prisoners that they get. You know, another, it struck me that another big uh, ticket item financially, $84 million, was uh, funding, although not through traditional uh, 
general fund uh, allocations, but rather through a tax mm -hmm. amnesty program. But this the governor's regional cities initiative, which uh, I f felt bad because I wasn't sure I understood what it is, but I've heard a lot of lawmakers say they're not sure what it is either. You both, uh, Chelsea and Nikki, you represent, I guess, what would be called We're target, be, communi RP, target our communities. Are be competing, competing against each other. To, 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 to basically, <laughs> right? I mean, is it, how big a deal is this for? For the Fort Wayne's, for the, the Evansville's, for the Bloomington's. Development local officials in my area are totally excited about it. I mean, basically, um, the idea behind it is, is is it brings areas together as a region, not like just a city proposal or a county proposal, and they'll look at you know the area and say, okay, what can we do to the area to make it the quality of life better? It's not necessarily like roads. You know, they're trying to improve mm -hmm. the quality of life, which will then ultimately attract people and businesses and so it's a match the state will provide half and then locals will have to provide some local tax money as well as some local private sector dollars to match that and they're, they're going to have grant applications and, and I, at least for two years we'll see how it goes definitely and i think it's also interesting you know evansville is in the tri-state area so whenever you can get state funding to help boost you know the ability for the region to compete and to draw you know young people in and to make it a really neat you know place to live i also think regional cities was a very interesting you know political issue or policy issue this session because it kind of showed you know governor pence's you know um his kind of lobbying you know strategies when one of his initiatives is not going you know as well as he wanted um earlier budget proposals cut funding for that program so I thought it was interesting to see at the waning days of the General Assembly, they pretty much gave him what he wanted in terms of original cities funding. And, and, and people, some people, you talked about lawmakers don't understand it, but I think if you follow what lawmakers say, a great example of what regional cities might be used for. Um, Senator Long talked a lot about the regional cities kickstarting regional development authorities, RDAs, mm -hmm. which in most parts of the state don't really exist very much because they need some money from the, a partnership with the state monetarily. Uh, there is an RDA in Northwest Indiana, and they just got something they've been working for years and years and years. In this budget, they got money for to build the uh, a new rail line up in Northwest Indiana that will extend a little further into the region. That's huge for them. They are unbelievably excited about it. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. Yeah, it's one project, but it has a kind of ripple effect throughout that whole region that will that be transformative for them. And some of those, uh, we'll go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just going to say that I, uh, sort of going off the topic a little bit. So that's allowed. We can but certainly. The, um, but I think what, one thing that's really interesting is in order to give the governor the regional cities mm -hmm. initiative, um, the Republicans kind of abandoned idea they had because they're paying for this with the tax, with the tax amnesty program. Mm -hmm. So it's one-time funding. They had been thinking about using that one-time funding to pay back the federal government um, for the unemployment loans that they took during the last economic downturn when they couldn't make their unemployment payments. Um, they've been paying that money back. They've gotten it to a manageable point. And if they pay it off um, this year, then the uh, businesses don't have to keep paying a penalty, um, which is $126 per employee, which doesn't sound like a lot. But in the end, it adds up to $327 million. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And so they opted to fund regional cities 
rather than an automatic it, 327 although what they didn't they give the authorization to pay it if in fact they money did. exists they, so they gave big authorization effort. to the state budget committee to go ahead and pay that loan off if there's extra money if there's extra money and right. then they also gave the um, state budget committee authorization to spend more on highways if there's right? money. if there's but extra there's money there's but the, the highway one is the the automatic one it, it, under the tax amnesty program, if it brings in $84 million, all that $84 million goes to regional cities. The next $6 million that it brings in after that goes to NDOT to pay for the Hoosier State Rail Line, which runs from Indianapolis to Chicago. I can say that really easily. <laughs> Anything after that is just extra. But that's so that's uh, you know about $90 million that will go nowhere else but these two programs. So I, that seems unlikely that they'll have enough. I don't think that they're going to have enough really either. Well, because it's, I mean, it's good intentions, right? It's good if have, intentions, I'm going to start taking that approach like with the, my with my uh, creditors. I, if I have the money, well, I'll, and it's not like the economy is heading in a direction that that makes everybody feel like mm -hmm. there's going to be all this extra cash. Yeah. Speaking of extra cash, we have a minute. I, I've just gotten the signal. The gambling legislation. Definitely. Some of the same cities that that are very <laughs> excited about regional cities program are going to finally move their casinos or at least they have the ability to move on to uh, land. Big Definitely. deal? Yeah, it was really interesting to me. You know, I started reporting, you know, in Indiana in 2009, and my first land-based story was in 2009. So to see the ability for a riverboat to move on to land with their existing footprint, I think will really help cities out where casino companies are willing to do that. Um, I think it kind of, it definitely boosts their ability to compete with regional areas, and I think it's going to be a game changer in terms of the industries. So. Of course, the uh, the horse track casinos have to wait at least until uh, 2021, March of 2021, March until Mike Pence would be done with a second term <laughs> before asking for live dealers. I do think it's fascinating, though. They put that caveat in there so live dealers wouldn't be in existence during Pence's term, even if he's reelected. But it is interesting. He's going to have to think in his head, like, when he's signing that bill, like, you know, is it, if I'm authorizing them, doesn't that count even if it won't mm -hmm. start under him? So we'll see how he responds to that bill. Time for us to adjourn, Sunny Die. Thanks again. Go start your naps now. Don't even set the alarm. You deserve a break. I appreciate your being here with us for this discussion. I've been joined by Leslie Widenbenner of thestatehousefile.com, Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting, Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette, and Chelsea Schneider of the Evansville Courier and Press. For more information, episode streams, and extra content, visit us on the web at wfyi.org lawmakers. Well, that concludes another edition and another season of Indiana Lawmakers. I'm John Schwannis, and on behalf of our crew, political analyst Ed Feigenbaum, WFYI Public Media, and Indiana's other public broadcasting stations, I thank you for joining us. Until next year, take care. The Visual Analytics Law Enforcement Toolkit, or VALET, developed at Purdue University, brings critical data and analytics to police departments instantly, so officers are a step ahead of criminal activity. To learn more, visit otc-prf.org.